Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Brazil, and this is the show where I can talk about sports. I get to talk about business and I get to talk about everything in between. Today, my incredible guest, I have Roy Kessel. He's the founder at Sports Philanthropy Network, has done a million different things in the industry, and I'm very excited to get to chat with him today. Roy, happy Monday. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. The pleasure is all mine, Roy. Excited to get to talk to you about your past, your present, your future, everything you got going on. But the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Uh, I've always loved sports from a very early age. I think my mom said my uh, her, her father put a little ball in my crib uh, when I was first born and said, make sure that he always has a ball. And I probably have never put it down since. So um, I, what I love about sports is I just love being active. Uh, I love the type of people that you get to connect with. Even as a kid, just most of my friendships were people I played sports with. It wasn't like today where you're probably in a travel sports group in a very contained group. I was playing every different sport all over the place in, in college Typically, I would be playing two, three sports a day, different groups of people for hockey and tennis and soccer and volleyball and, and everything else. And even now, uh, coming up on 56 uh, until COVID was still playing hockey and tennis and golf and softball and other things. So uh, love to be active. And uh, in particular, I think that you really connect with people and get to learn a lot about them through sports. And so that's one of the things that has always driven my passion. You you see the way people behave, the way they react, um, their intensity, their focus. Um, but sports also has such a power to do good and to break down barriers and create social change. And that's kind of what's led to Sports Philanthropy Network. I love it. And I think, right, the connections people get through sports I walk into. I used to be able to walk into bars, right? And I saw someone with a Mets hat on or a Mets shirt on, immediately start a conversation with them. We're best friends. We're talking about whatever happened that day. If I see someone in a bar with an Eagles jersey on, I quickly turn around and I leave that bar, right? So it's it's knowing who people are and what they do. And, and really, you can kind of, it's it's an easy way to kind of have friends, right? It's like that easy. We all have something in common here. We all love this. We all love that. And I think that that part is really important. And as you said, the the, the opportunity for social change, we've obviously seen a significant amount of it this last year in particular with the NBA bubble and what was going on and then MLB and and their players deciding, Hey, we're, we're protesting these games and you've seen a lot of positives come from it. And there's been a lot of people that are very angry about it, but I believe if you have a platform, why, why can't you talk about it? I, I don't, I never understood why people get angry. If a basketball player has a particular view, it turns out opposite bears in most situations. And that's why they're angry about it. But why can you go spout off about stuff? Who the hell cares who you are? So I, I don't really understand why people um, get angry about that. I think it's they have a platform and should utilize it. I'm very excited to get to talk to you kind of how athletes can create real change. And, you know, some of the examples that we've seen so far. But I, I guess what what got you into the philanthropy side of sports? Because there's so many different things to do, right? Like people don't realize sports philanthropy is a thing. I've had multiple people on this show that have talked about sports philanthropy. What's the difference between sports philanthropy and regular philanthropy, I guess? Well, in, in, in a true theory, there probably isn't any real distinction in terms of sports philanthropy versus what you would call traditional philanthropy. I think that the element is where, where the setting is and the power that sports has to draw attention and, and capture those eyeballs and use and leverage that 
attention for good. And so you talked about the fact that there, there's people that will critique an athlete for taking a stand, right, for mm-hmm. using that platform. I'm going to go the exact opposite direction, and I'm going to say I believe that the athletes have an obligation to use some of that power to do things. I think that as an athlete, you stand for something, right? It's not for Roy to tell you what you need to believe in, what you need to support. But whatever those things are, you have a powerful tool at your disposal. Um, We'll leave the money side of it out because some people are willing to uh, part with their money and, and or invest their money, as you've seen people like LeBron James or Andre Agassi or any number of other high-profile athletes that have really created a mechanism for change, not just making a pure donation, but making sure that the money that they invest truly comes looking for a return in a in an ability to scale the impact that it has. So in terms of sports philanthropy versus other philanthropy, I think that uh, people see more of what goes on in sports. All right. If, if somebody makes a donation for another cause, it's not running on the ticker on ESPN. It's not on Fox FS one, right? It's not on sports talk radio. Um, In terms of when I first got connected to it, I would say it was late 90s, early 2000s when I was running uh, a lot of celebrity and charity golf events. So we had created an event for the Tournament of Roses in Pasadena. We ran some events for the NFL Coaches Association and got a chance through those and through some other events to see the athletes really wanting to make an impact in their community, have a strong desire to give back. But unfortunately, they've never been given the tools or resources or support to make that impact. So you go back and and try and figure out why that hasn't happened. And sadly, it's because the athletes have been conditioned to believe that off the field or off of the court, their highest and best use is one of four things. And that would be signing autographs, taking photos, playing in golf outings, or showing up at fundraising dinners. And and really, that's a gross injustice to those players. These are guys who, and women, not just men, okay, that have really worked at the highest level. They've accomplished a lot. You don't get to any professional sports level by mistake. You've put in a lot of hours. And so now you have that opportunity to make an impact you may need a little bit of direction because just like any student coming out of college um, and and being young, being in your mid-20s, which is obviously the peak years for, for most pro athletes, you've never run a business, probably. You've never served on the board of a nonprofit, probably. And so how do we teach and, and educate the athletes to make that impact? How do we take him or her and say, look, Here's the way that you can do this most effectively. And it may not be starting your own foundation. In many cases, I counsel people against that because the amount of resources and time that it takes to build up the infrastructure for your own foundation is not worth it if you're not going to be dedicated to something for the rest of your life. And part of the reason so many athletes fail at their foundations is that they're led to believe by agents or other advisors that their foundation will be sort of the be all and end all of supporting them when their playing days are done. And really the foundations are supposed to be to support 
the community, mm-hmm. to do good things in the community. So while they're playing, if they're making high six figures, seven figures in, in an NBA, NFL, MLB, whatever the league is, they may look at it and go, okay, I don't mind throwing a couple hundred thousand dollars a year into my foundation to pay an executive director, to pay some staff, to run a few events. That's great. Um, very few of them have the ability of somebody like a J.J. Watt to scale that and really take that investment and turn it into millions of dollars for the community. So most of the players, when they're done playing, look at that now it's a cash drain on Mm -hmm. on their financial situation. And because they haven't invested the time and resources up front, that's not a sustainable model for them. And and many of these foundations disappear. So for many, it's a better model for them to work with an existing foundation, right? And if Michael says, I want to have Michael's celebrity golf tournament, fantastic. But you can pick where those funds go and you can choose different charities. You can split it up for each event. You can have it different groups for different years. And it gives you some flexibility to grow because many of us in our early 20s, mid 20s, don't necessarily know what our Mm -hmm. passion is going to be, what the cause that is most aligned with us is going to be. Oftentimes that comes about from uh, injuries or illness. Sometimes it comes about from other experience from a teammate, from a spouse, from anybody else. And so having that flexibility to work with different organizations is often a, a key element. A hundred percent. And I think it's it's really interesting because you're right. So many people, they start their own foundations with obviously very good and well intentions, right? They want to help specific type of people do a specific thing, have better quality of life, whatever that may be. But then, as you said, you know, they kind of just throw some money on it. They probably started it in the off season, right? When they were just doing workouts and training. And then once the season comes around, they're kind of just back doing that because that's their one source of income that they're only going to have for a short period of time. So understandably, that's what they focus on. And we've seen in many situations, it's somebody's wife, it's somebody's girlfriend, somebody's mom gets put in a higher up position. So now they're essentially paying them. They don't really know what they're doing. They're just kind of doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And, and you're 100% right. Many of these foundations then leave. I do want to hop back to something you said a little earlier um, in, in that, that part of the conversation where you said athletes were really told to do, they, they were given four things essentially to do. Uh, now you listen about autographs, going to dinners, going to golf events, and I forget whatever, taking pictures, whatever the fourth one was. Why? Why were those four things? Is it just because it's easy? Is that easy for the agent to manage? I mean, now with social media, obviously, we all kind of know that's not the that's not the case. Maybe it still is, you know, from your circles. But why was it those four things that they were led to believe will actually create the most change, even though there's so many other things that they could potentially be doing? I don't think that they were led to believe that would create the most change. I think, as you said, it was the easiest okay. point and it was the most marketable element because it's it's way more marketable to position the athlete as a celebrity mm-hmm. than as somebody uh, asserting a cause. Yeah. And so uh, obviously whether it's what's being charged for autographs or photos or what's being charged for a golf outing or a dinner, you, you need that celebrity attendance. And, and the flip side of that is that it's quite negative long-term for the athletes because they're not developing themselves 
as anything other than a celebrity. So when their celebrity status expires, meaning they're done playing sports, Mm -hmm. very few athletes have the staying power of being an elite name in the celebrity circles, right? If you're not a Hall of Fame player, if you're not a uh, an icon in your city, right? So, so we're in Chicago, right? So you can take the 85 Bears, you can take Mike Ditka, you can take Brian Urlacher, right? But outside of that, from a high-level, national-level celebrity, right, there's not a lot else. And that's true in every market. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to Hall of Fame, right, so you can go look at Drew Brees or Tom Brady, you can go back to Dan Marino, you can, et cetera, et cetera. But very few players reach that echelon. And so what typically we've spoken to players about is develop your brand and develop your brand in a sustainable role, meaning as a business person, as somebody who can do things beyond just the playing field, because you have a lot of talent, you have a lot of skill to to get to that point. And there's a whole sort of cottage industry that's been developed on helping athletes improve and and develop their careers when they're done playing sports. So now we need to look at how do you combine those two elements? How do you make a greater impact in the community while still building your personal brand or reputation in a way that gives you not only a platform to make change, but a, a platform to earn a living? How do you do that? Well, I, I, I feel think like that, you asked that question knowing that I was going to ask that question because you know the answer. So good stuff. Thank you. We're, we're good well, at this. I like that. Yeah. And, and I don't know that there there's always an easy answer because each person, just like any of us, have different skills and interests. So one person will be interested in, in healthcare and one person will be interested in technology. I, I think the key element is while you're playing sports as an athlete, build up your network of relationships on the business side, not just on the celebrity side, because everybody will come to you as a celebrity. Everybody will want to take a picture with you, get an autograph, play golf with you, right? That's fantastic. But you as the athlete have to look at this and say, ultimately, other than what I'm going to call short-term dollars, right? Because they're really transactional. They're one-off situations other than being paid for that appearance. What am I getting out of this? There are some incredibly bright people, incredibly powerful people involved involved in all of these organizations. Take advantage while you have that access, while you're a player, sit down with them, learn from them, find out what, what your passion is. Do you want to go into finance when you're done playing football? Do you want to go into film when you're done playing basketball? It doesn't matter. There's people that will be in your network as an athlete that you have access to. But it's it's kind of uh, like people look at LinkedIn and other networks that they build. You, you can't build it in a snap of a finger and have access to it. Relationships take time to nurture and to grow. You need to be connected with people so they're in your network. When something comes up that I can sit down with Michael and say, hey, I've got something that would be great to work on with you, okay? Based on a relationship, I can bring that to you. If I just click on LinkedIn and I'm selling you something and I'm trying to pitch you, uh, 
I'm sure you get the same hundreds of those a day that I get from all kinds of directions. And it's not a very warm feeling. If we've taken time to sit down together and have this kind of conversation as we did before this podcast and as we're doing now and we'll do in the future, right? Six months, a year from now where there's something that's a great fit, it's a different type of conversation. And sadly, the athletes haven't been taught or trained how to do that. They haven't been taught that in high school, college, at their pro team. Um, It's gotten a lot better in the last five to 10 years. I think there's a lot more focus there, but it's still not at the level that it could be. Um, So some of that blame, I, I would say, would be apportioned around right between groups like the players themselves, Mm -hmm. the teams, the players associations, the agents, right? Those are sort of four groups that have access right away. And, and it's incumbent on all of them to collaborate, to come up with a good plan. Yeah, because right, like these athletes, as you said, they're celebrity status. Um, And I'm working on a project right now where we're having athletes interview athletes on sports and business, right? Not not really their sports career, but everything that's happened after it and what how they utilized their the shield, right? The shield of the NFL. Like, How much easier is it to have a conversation with someone saying, hey, I played for the Detroit Lions. Hey, I played for the Seattle Seahawks. It's a lot easier to get into the people that you need to get into. Right. And and I'm learning that firsthand from many of these athletes that are we're, we're working on this with. But how many actually take advantage of it is a surprising few. And as you said, yes, some of that obviously is going to fall on the athlete. Some falls on the agent, the players association, the leagues themselves, but also as it comes from a place of, you know, how you grew up and who you grew up with and where you grew up, right? Obviously everybody comes from a different situation and those conversations were not had at the dinner table. Like they may have been for me and my family. So it's always interesting to kind of see where people come from and who takes advantage. Cause some people learn and some people, I mean, I don't want to say they don't learn, but then they just don't ever take advantage of that. So How you said that word network, I see it behind your head right now, sports philanthropy network, I guess, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing and how that might line up where some of these athletes can learn about how to run charities, about how to run their opportunities, about who to connect with so that they're making the best cause and not just throwing money down the drain. Tell me a little bit about what you do and how you're creating that network for them or, or with them or through them. Yeah, I, I I think it isn't a cookie cutter model. Uh, I really encourage people to take the time to think through their own passions and interests. Uh, what is important to you? What do you want to be involved with? There are incredible organizations out there using every sport you can conceive of, from surfing to ultimate frisbee to ice skating to beach volleyball, etc., MMA, anything you can conceive of as being used in developing kids through sports, creating social change. Um, And then there's also all of your regular, we'll call it regular nonprofits that are in other areas. And so the, the really the starting point for me is to sit down with an athlete and say, you've got to tell us what you're interested in. Oh, it's, it's sort of like going to a travel agent and saying, you know, book my vacation. Uh-huh. Well, I, I need to know what you want. Are you trying to go to Aspen and go skiing or you want to go to Florida and go to the beach or you want to go to the Grand Canyon and go hiking? OK, I can't decide for you what you want to do, but I can help you find the right people and I can help you connect with those organizations. We have over 5000 organizations 
connected to our network that are all over the world. When we hold our sports philanthropy conference last year, we had 30 countries involved. We had 327 organizations. We had some fantastic speakers from former NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue to work done, who did our opening keynote, to Lee Steinberg, who's one of the top NFL agents, to Troy Vincent, who's the executive VP of the NFL. And I'll tell you that in addition to that caliber of person, there's so many others that people haven't heard of because they were not star athletes or sort of in a celebrity type of space that are doing incredibly impactful work from Brazil to Africa, to the Middle East, to Europe, as well as everywhere across the United States. And so I, as I said at the beginning, you as the athlete have to express what types of areas you're interested in. I can show you and and give you an array of things, just like if you walk into a store, somebody can go show you all kinds of clothing, but you have to decide what what you want to pick. And so it it is a process. There's no cookie cutter thing. We can we showcase a lot of organizations on our site through organizational spotlights. We have research. We've got our podcasts with lots of different groups. And so you can learn about different organizations, what they're doing, what their challenges are, what help they need. And all of them, almost all of them would love to have athletes involved in supporting their cause. And again, it's not only in a financial context, it's about who those athletes can bring into the network, who those athletes can attract to golf outings or dinners. But more importantly, I encourage the athletes to actually be involved with the cause and understand what's going on because I don't want them to be quote unquote, only a celebrity. I want them in a sense to be a board member, to look at the organization and say, strategically, what can I do to help this organization grow? Who can I connect this organization to? That's, where I think they can be really valuable and, and really impactful. And how did this start, right? You said you got your, your start in the sports philanthropy space doing a lot of uh, golf outings, which I've been to a few of those. They are a blast. The food there is always incredible. I've been to Winged Foot like 15 times, and I love it every single time I go because they have the best spread that I've ever been around. But how do you how do you take all your knowledge, your experience, your skills from this endeavor and in the multiple that you've had to then say, you know what I can do? I can help connect athletes and, and sports philanthropy or regular philanthropy endeavors. And I can put the right athletes in the right spots and you somehow make money in this process. I'm curious, you don't have to tell us how much you make, but you got to make something right. So I'm just kind of curious, how did you put all this together and make it to the point where over just a, a couple of years now, right? You have over 5,000 organizations involved. Yeah. So I, I think that the, um, the the way that we look at it is our mission is to build stronger, healthier, and more inclusive communities through sports. So we work with the organizations really in two functions. Number one is in a sense of media function of covering the work that they do, organizational spotlights, extensive social media platforms, interviews, as well as our podcasts that come out uh, multiple times per week. The second function is really in education and professional development. So we run education like workshops, trainings, webinars, seminars, and then our signature event of Sports Philanthropy World. Our view is that the best function we can serve is to bring people together 
to find collaboration partners, to put people in the same room with those that can help them, and to, uh, in the nonprofit parlance, help them build capacity, help them develop their organization so that the organization is sustainable. Uh, the organization can develop enough funding to really execute what it wants to do and not be in the situation that many startup businesses are. Nonprofits are essentially a business that just doesn't have a goal of creating wealth for the shareholders, but is creating benefit for the community. And so the the goal there is we don't want Michael to create a nonprofit that disappears when he's put 10 years of hard work into it because Michael gets hit by a bus. Mm. Okay. So we want to make sure that the organization can develop the systems and can develop the infrastructure that can grow because the funders um, and the foundations that will support your work will look at it as a, uh, they look at it actually as a bad risk. If I'm investing in somebody that hasn't built out the whole organization, if everything's in your head and your cell phone and nobody else has access to any of that vision and direction for the organization, it's hard to get larger foundations to give you significant capital mm -hmm. to develop the organization, just like it would be with a startup business, right? A startup business, if you go to VCs or private equity groups, they want to see that you've got a strong management team and it's no different in the nonprofit world. Makes sense, man. So what are some of the successes that you've had? I mean, you've been doing this thing for a little while. Uh, if there's anything that you could tell us, I'd love to hear kind of certain athletes that you might have hooked up with certain organizations. And I mean, obviously, during a pandemic is probably not the easiest thing in the world, but I'm sure you got some stuff in your back pocket you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. I, I think our biggest success that people can see is the Sports Philanthropy World Conference. We launched that in our first year and on uh, six months notice with a brand new organization and an event nobody heard of. We had 120 organizations participating um, from around the U.S., uh, several countries involved. But what was interesting to me from that first event is we had inquiries from 87 countries around the world that were wanting to participate. Um, obviously, funding and resources to travel to the U.S. is a significant issue. Um, I got scolded multiple times because they said, your country won't give us a visa in time to get there. Otherwise, we would be there. Um, and so that, that was a great event that we were building on last year going into COVID. Uh, a second success, I think we really, last year during COVID, took advantage of what was going on and pivoted very quickly when everything broke in March and people in our network seemed to be concerned about what the future was, rightfully so, mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of people sort of stopping and looking around and trying to figure out what do we do. And so we jumped in very quickly in April and May of last year, and we hosted three podcasts a week, three webinars a week. So we had a very heavy production schedule for those two months. And over that time, it seemed that people came out of the fog a little bit and started getting more activated again. Um, we certainly can't take credit for that, but hopefully we gave them some good content and helped them connect with some good relationships. And then our virtual event last year, again, uh, over 430 people in 30 countries involved, uh, the desire to host this type of event in other parts of the world is is intense. And we've had groups approach us from Africa and Europe and the Far East about creating a sports philanthropy world conference in their uh, 
continent. And and I honestly believe that within a couple of years, we'll end up with two a year, one in the U.S. and one abroad. And so I think for me, the the validation of what we've done is the support that we've got from high-end groups, as we mentioned, from the NFL League office, from many NFL teams, MLB teams, other groups that have participated in our events that have walked away and want us to now start creating mini conferences, training for them, for the grantees in their organization. So it's good to see that more people are interested in helping their organizations that they support develop and improve. As I describe it, it's in the nature of teaching the grantees from their organizations to fish instead of continuing to give them a fish. And so I I like that model. I I like seeing the growth and uh, we've, we've really had a lot of interest and support coming in. So I'm excited about what this year holds. Teach Amanda fish. I love it, Roy. That is fantastic. It, it sounds like you guys are doing some amazing stuff over there, obviously helping as many people as you can through that network effect and being able to connect those athletes and, and celebrities to do real, have real change, but not just, you know, be a part of an organization by throwing some money at it and throwing their face on it. Actually, as you said, make them become board members, get them involved in the organization so that when they are finished at being athletes, which is their number one, most important, ob- obvious job, they can then go and, and continue to create change and not have these things disappear, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Roy, people wanted to learn more about your conferences or about you or anything. Where could we go online to find all that? Yeah, we're very easy to find. We're very active on uh, all the social media platforms. So sportsphilanthropynetwork.org is the website. Everything's on there. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn or basically any of the other platforms just at Roy Kessel. Um, the, We've got so many ways for people to be involved, from from task forces to donations to collecting sports equipment to other ways that they can help support the efforts in the communities. And we really work with businesses and foundations to support their local communities because we know people want to keep their dollars local. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly don't mind helping in other communities, but they don't want somebody coming in taking all the resources out of their community. So we're we're launching chapters later this year uh, around the country in different markets so that we can continue to make that local impact and make those decisions on a more local and regionalized basis of how to get more organizations involved. I love it. And what's the website one more time? Website is sportsphilanthropynetwork.org. Bang. Nice and easy, Roy. This was absolutely fantastic. Sincerely appreciate your time today, man. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Bye, everybody. Thank you.